Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, if you'll turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And as you're making your way to Exodus 12, I want to welcome those who are worshiping with us, the rest of our church family and the Family Life Center, and encourage you to turn in your Bibles as well, or if you're worshiping uh, from far away online and you're streaming uh, into this service right now, welcome, and let me just say, while we are flipping pages or scrolling on your device to Exodus 12, let me, let me just say happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you for whom that that word is meaningful today. Some of you have uh, family here. We're blessed to have my mother and Laura's mother here in worship with, with you as well. And, and I'm grateful. And I hope that wherever you are, you're able to um, enjoy this day and be together. Uh, but right now, we begin with uh, a continuation of our series. So as we continue to explore... Exodus, the book of Exodus. We've come to the place now in this ongoing series where we are right on the brink of liberation. We've said all along that the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus is about getting out of Egypt. It's about freedom. It's about becoming free, liberation. And thus far, we have recognized that for 430 years, the people of the Hebrews, they had been uh, enslaved in more ways than one. Not only physically enslaved day in and day out with the mindless, back-breaking work of making bricks and sustaining the empire for Pharaoh, But we also recognize in the last couple of weeks that another kind of enslavement can be just as life-taking, the enslavement of the imagination. And for 430 years, they had been enslaved to be unable to imagine a world that was other than the one they were living I mean, for crying out loud, everywhere they looked, these monuments to Pharaoh were emerging out of the grounds, pyramids and statues reminding them that no matter what they thought, no matter how hard they tried to imagine a different existence, it was futile because Pharaoh ran the show. The power of empire had enslaved their imagination to even be free to think of the possibility of life. With the control mechanism of power and domination and violence and intimidation and fear, they'd all but given up hope and had even stopped telling the old stories of faith. Moses comes along and declares a new word that God is up to something in the lives of the enslaved. 
God is always up to something in the lives of the enslaved then and now. But he was up to something then, setting them free. He goes to Pharaoh and demands that he set the people free. But instead of freeing them, Pharaoh clamps down even more firmly. He doubles down on their oppression and their hard work. And last week we saw that God responds with a, a series of consecutive plagues that are meant to one at a time knock down one part of the infrastructure of Egypt. And with each one of those plagues, it was like, as we said last week, Eugene Peterson said, it's like a wrecking ball that comes to, to dismantle the, the power structure of fear and domination in each plague, just knocking a bit of the scaffolding down. Well, today, we make our way to the last plague. It's the night of the last plague where God will strike all of Egypt and the firstborn of all living things is stricken dead. But the text that we have to read today is a long text. That's just a heads up. Sometimes I like to weave the text into the sermon, but today I'm listening to this text and, and what emerges from the pages is, is, is a call to just let the text do the text. It's filled with so much imagery and symbol and energy and movement that we just need to listen to the whole thing unfold. So if you will, join me in Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. Happy New Year. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family. A lamb for each household. If, if a household is too small for a lamb... For a whole lamb, it shall join with its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old, male. You may take it from sheep or goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water because that's just gross. <laughs> Translations, paraphrases. But roasted over the fire with his head and legs and inner organs, you, you shall let none of it remain until the morning, and anything that does remain until the morning you must burn. This is how you shall eat it. Jo gir your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. 
It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses, for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from all of Israel. On the first day you shall hold a solemn assembly. On the seventh day you shall hold a solemn assembly, and no work shall be done on those days. Only what is everyone must eat, that alone may be prepared for you. It's kind of like Mother's Day. And Mom, this is your day. What are we eating? You know? I hope that you're not doing that today to your mothers. Uh, but you must not work on these particular days except what it takes to work at mealtime to get your food together. Picking up in verse 17, you shall observe the festival of unleavened bread for on this very day I brought your companies out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a perpetual ordinance. In the first month from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, you shall eat unleavened bread. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether an alien or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders together and he explained all that. He, he paraphrased all of what he had just heard from the Lord. And then picking up in verse 25... When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but he spared our houses and the people bowed down. And worshipped. The reading of the sacred word. It is reliable and it can be trusted. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, who is for all of us a loving parent who mothers us in good care, protects us like a fierce mother, determined to carry us on your wings, as Isaiah says. We pray to you this moment, asking that you might speak in a way that we hear something that changes everything. 
We've come to this place with a number of concerns, burdens, anxieties, and they are on the, the heads and shoulders of all your worshipers here and all the places where we have gathered. And our only prayer is this, that you would lift from our shoulders the burden of anything that keeps us from hearing you. Lord, speak now through me so that what we hear is more than just the thoughts of one man, but your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today I want to talk to you for just a few moments about bloodstains, fast food, and irritating children, irritating kids, all right? Blood stains, fast food, and irritating kids. First, blood stains. In my home, there is a storage bin. It's down in the storage part of the basement, and in that bin is a burgundy shirt, long sleeve, button-down shirt. It's a little over 17, 18 years old, it was the shirt that I was wearing when Laura gave birth to Nathan, our firstborn. I keep it because I'm kind of sentimental that way, so it's there with a bunch of other pimentos, the time spent. But what's unique about this shirt is it's been washed and laundered a great deal since that day. It's been worn. However, if you look closely at the shirt, there is a place on there where you can still see a stain. A blood stain from where I held my son for the very first time in my arms. And when I see that shirt, and more specifically, when I see the, the remnant of that stain that just won't go away, it can't be shouted out, you know. Something happens in me that something is, is triggered. There, it triggers something in me. And now I'm not just looking at a blood stain and I'm not just looking at a shirt, but I'm in the labor and delivery room all over again. There are blood stains in this passage that are meant to do the same thing in the hearts of the Hebrews that that one raggedy shirt does for me when I look at it. It's meant to trigger something in their sacred memory that will never stop living. So there's some really important instructions that God gives, and you just listen to all of them. God says to Moses, here are the things that are going to happen. This is how it's going to go down tonight when I set your people free. And you have to listen and follow these instructions very carefully. But more than that, what you're going to do is start an annual rhythm of reminding yourself about what's happening tonight, so pay close attention. And he gives all kinds of details, curious details. I mean, details about what to eat and how to cook it and how to dress for that particular meal. But of all the details that are given on Passover night, the most mystifying for me is the slaughter of the lambs. There is a one-year-old lamb, very specifically. It must be male. It must have no blemishes on it. It's got to be gentle and perfect in all of its ways. And it's to be slaughtered, but then we're told that there are some things you do with it. You prepare it a certain way. You serve it a certain way. You wear certain clothes when you're eating it, and we'll get to that in a minute. 
But what's most curious to me is it says, as you're doing this and setting the table and people are coming to sit down and eat, I want you to take some of the blood uh, from that lamb and spread it on the doorposts of the house where you're eating. I want you to put a blood stain over the doorpost of the house where you are eating. And on that night, we interpret what has usually been the interpretation is on that night, the, uh, the Lord shows up and he goes through Egypt and he strikes down the Egyptians. But every house that has blood stained on it, he passes by. But there's something problematic with how we interpret that part of the text. Because sometimes it, it, it kind of leaves God looking like he's the, like the census bureau guy with a clipboard. Like he doesn't know where the Hebrews are and he goes to the house. Who lives here? How many of you? Okay, are you Hebrew? I see, I have a record. Okay, you're good. Good. See, it leaves the impression that God somehow has to see the blood stain on the doorpost or else God would somehow not even know whether they were Hebrew inside or not. But I don't, I don't think God needs that kind of help. God is God's own GPS navigation system. But if we closely pay attention to the way the text describes that moment of putting blood over the doorposts, it may reveal something. This is how it reads. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, the blood is a sign for you. It's not as if God somehow needed to see it, as if God was playing some passive role, and, and if you don't have the blood, I just don't know, I can't discriminate who's in and who's out. But rather, the text very clearly says, spread the blood so that there will be something that will provoke something in you, so that it'll be a sign for you. And on that night, when nothing but death and destruction and chaos and suffering was ensued all through Egypt on that night of great darkness, the blood stain over the doorpost was a sign to the Hebrews that even in the midst of the darkest hour, when there is nothing but chaos all around, we have been marked. We are covered by mercy. And every time you see the mark or the the blood stain, let it remind you that you are covered with mercy. See, for 430 years they were slaves and they had no name and no place. They were nameless, faceless, aimless slaves who had been orphaned, it seemed, generation after generation, and they needed some sign to trigger something deep so that they were aware that they were not alone. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had a memorial service here for a dear JCBC uh, member, Craig Rock. Lori is here today, and I asked Lori's permission to share this um, the story. When Glenn, when you and I were, were visiting him and, and, and Lori in their home uh, just a few days before his passing, um, he said something to us, and Glenn shared this at, at the, the memorial service. Craig said that he believes that every time a baby is born, no matter who the baby is or where the baby's from or what the nationality is of the baby or the ethnicity of the baby, right? No, whenever a baby is born, he said, I feel like God stamps M 
I-N-E on that baby. This baby is mine. This baby is loved. This baby belongs with me. For 430 years, the orphaned, seemingly orphaned children of Israel had no name. They had no hope. And yet here, the blood stains over the the doorway. It it cries out, you are mine. M-I-N-E. And you have nothing to fear here tonight. The blood stains over the door. It, It said something to those inside the house, but it also said something to those outside the house, if you ask me. What it basically said to all the world, to every Egypt and every imperial power that attempts to to humiliate and intimidate and subjugate and dominate, it, it proclaims to every worldly power that attempts to enslave us, you have no power when you are in the company of this kind of God. Is it any wonder at all, oh my, when you turn to the New Testament, is it any wonder when Christ comes onto the scene and the Christ event erupts into the cosmos. And here we have Jesus who is crucified on a cross, buried, dead, and on the third day raised to new life. And now they're telling these stories around campfires and and in hushed back rooms so as to not uh, invoke persecution upon themselves. But eventually somebody has to write it down. And so is it any wonder why the writers of the New Testament when trying to wrap words around this wordless mystery of what just happened in Jesus, is it any wonder why they, did, they reached back and they grabbed this dominant theme from the book of Exodus and yanked it forward and said, you know, if you really want to understand this thing that just unfolded on the cross, look at the bloodstains on that wood. Because the bloodstains on the cross uh, is a proclamation to every imperial power of sin and brokenness and addiction, any kind of imperial power that attempts to subjugate you and keep you from living free, it is a reminder that you are marked, you are M-I-N-E. Somebody say, Amen. So we, we need blood stains in our lives to trigger a memory that we have been redeemed. My question for you, are there blood stains over your doorpost? Parents, does everyone in your family know what the stains mean? Have they somehow been acquainted with the story of where the blood came from and why, when it spread over them, they can rest at ease in an Egypt of destruction. Bloodstains provoke faith. So if it is true that there are bloodstains over the houses in which we eat this food, here's, here's the thing, a little tip for us. We need to get comfortable eating fast food. Fast food. I'm not a big fan of fast food, although I do go to Chick-fil-A quite a bit. I love Chick-fil-A, not just because of the food, but because they know how to do the drive-thru. Come on. Because when it's rush hour and and, and the the crowd has, has congested and bottlenecked right there, they know what to do. They send some of their workers outside 
and, and they're, they're kind of sprinkled down through the lane and they're taking the orders on the little pads. So you just kind of keep moving. And by the time you move, the reason they know how to do the drive through is because they know what the whole point is. The whole point of you being there is to not visit the drive through your point is not to somehow experience the drive-thru, to have a conversation of deep meaning with the person talking to you through the little speaker. How you been? You doing well? It's been a while. Yeah, family good? No. They know the whole point of going through a drive-thru is to get what you get and split. <laughs> Amen? You get what you get and split. Fast food. In this story, there is an urgency I hope you picked up on. Because the whole point is not to stay in Egypt. The whole point is to split. And every detail that is given here is given with a, with a, a hurriedness to it. So here's how you prepare the food in a hurry. Here is how you eat the food in a hurry. Here's how you bake the bread in a hurry. You roast the lamb instead of preparing it in some other way. You don't marinate it while you watch the game. You know why? There's no time for that. We got to get the unleavened bread. Did you notice in the, in, in, the, in the passage, the unleavened bread keeps repeating again and again and again. I mean, like redundantly over and over, repeating itself, saying the same thing once more and again, repeatedly. Got it. Gotcha. Good. Because there's no time for the leaven to work. There's no, there's no time for the leaven to make the bread rise and prepare it for a delicious... There's no time. And there's even great detail in how you're supposed to dress on the night of Passover. We pick it up right here. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, which means your traveling hat it needs to be on. Ready to go. Prepared. Buttoned up. Sandals on your feet. See, in our house, whenever we say, okay, everybody ready to go? And sometimes Jackson, who is in the other room right now, crawling under his chair, I know. Um, he'll say, I'm ready. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. I look down. He has no shoes on his feet at all. Like bare, barefooted. And, and, and I said, well, get your shoes on. He said, I'll put them on in the car. It's fine. So there's a very fluid definition of what it means to be ready to go in our home. But not in, not in Egypt, sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it hurriedly. Why? Because it's risky business leaving Egypt. Then and now. That night they are leaving more than just enslavement. See, it would be easy enough just to assume that, that going out of Egypt was kind of like just walking out of a prison cell. But they weren't just physically enslaved. They were enslaved to a way of life, a, a way of thinking about their existence in Egypt. And if they lingered too long, if they waited for the meat to marinate while they watched the game, if they waited for the leaven to make the dough rise while they waited patiently, if they waited with their shoes off, just relaxed, it would send the signal that maybe we're not so ready to leave Egypt after all. 
Maybe it's not so bad under Pharaoh. I understand that, that Yahweh is calling me to a wilderness of, of freedom and liberation and joy and life. But what's, what's the big hurry? If they were not to hurry, it would send a signal that maybe I prefer the way of Pharaoh over the way of Yahweh. You know, when I talk Egypt and Pharaoh, you know I don't mean Egypt and Pharaoh, right? What I mean is whatever imperial power happens to be the thing that keeps you enslaved. Egypt is just, it's just whatever it is that keeps you enslaved. Pharaoh is just whatever power, invisible as it may be, seems to keep you enslaved. And I think it's sometimes possible to choose to stay in our enslavement, even though we know there is a better way, a healthier way, to be freer and to be truer. And yet, do you know what I've noticed about our species? We sometimes tend to stay in what is familiar, even if it's unhealthy, as opposed to stepping into something unfamiliar that is far healthier. I love what Walter Brueggemann says about this very thing. Walter Brueggemann says, If Egypt and Pharaoh are to be understood as references to any and every agent of oppression or abuse, and we, you and I could go on to say addiction or any kind of trouble that keeps you enslaved, then this festival that we're talking about here evokes an important restlessness. Indeed, when the community of faith no longer has this festival of urgent departure, it runs the risk of being excessively and in unseemly ways at home in the empire. Do you have a restlessness when you are in your Egypt? Now, I cannot stand up here and presume to tell you what the name of your Egypt is or whatever it is that keeps you enslaved or not free. But is it possible that you need to be restless before you can be free? And part of dressing in a hurry and cooking in a hurry and baking in a hurry and eating in a hurry is to connote this kind of faith desire to be free, to, to be free of this restlessness. How at home are you in the empire of your own enslavement? How at home are you in the empire of your own enslavement? Because the blood stains that are hanging over, hanging over the doorpost, you know why they're there, right? To remind you that, hey, listen, heads up, you can leave Egypt. You don't have to stay here. But if you're comfortable here, then just keep your shoes off and marinate the lamb and watch the game. But you, you can go. Which leads us to the last movement of the sermon. Irritating kids. Irritating kids. Now, when our children were really young, whether it was right or wrong, we kind of made a choice in how we talked to our kids. And Laura and I talked to them um, with the hope of speaking to them with the kind of dignity and respect that they're born with in the image of God, which meant we always kind of attempted to raise the level of conversation 
So when you talk to an adult, you look adults in the eye, you shake their hand, you answer, you be present. We try to talk to them about being fully present with, with wherever you happen to be. And so we raise the stakes on how we talk. The trouble is, is when it backfires on me. So whenever we would be in conflict about something, I'd call them on it, but then they would argue back. And sometimes they'd make some pretty good points. <laughs> so then the debate would ensue. We'd go back and forth. And sometimes when I realized I was kind of losing the debate, I'd get kind of, you know, I'd point out where their subjects and verbs weren't agreeing in their sentence, you know. And then their mother would step in and, and quote things like Ephesians 6, you know, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger yeah, and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the blah, 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 blah. You know? But, you know, in fact, put that verse up there again, Gina. But I want you to hang on to this verse for a minute. Provoking your children. That's all true, by the way. Yeah, don't be nasty to your kids. That's the point. But do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that's interesting because you know what I think? I think sometimes bringing someone up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord sometimes requires provoking. Maybe we bring someone up in the way of the Lord by provoking something in them. Or, another way to put it, by irritating something in them. See, when I put it up there earlier, you thought I'm talking about irritating kids like an adjective, like, like kids who are irritating. That's not what I mean. I mean it with a verb. Like it's on you, parents. It's on, it's on all of us as parents and community of faith to irritate kids to the point that it causes them to provoke faith. For example, if I'm walking along here and I have a, an irritant in my shoe, a little stone or pebble or something, and it's affecting the way I, I walk and I'm, I'm kind of crooked and I don't have the right thing, the irritant is asking me to give full attention to what the problem is so I can remove the irritant and straighten my walk. Sometimes we are called to provoke or even irritate our children until they are walking straight. And in this story, the Hebrews are giving us a gift. They're saying, look, every year when we do this festival, hey, let's make sure that we do this. The Lord said every time that you do this thing, the kids are going to ask a question. So irritate them with it. In fact, this is the way the text reads. And when your children ask you, uh, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. Even in the next chapter that we didn't read, this is repeated and it, and it says it in a different way. This is what we read. You shall tell your child, provoke your child, irritate your child. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and on your forehead so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Do you hear the pronouns that are used here? Do you know that when your Jewish neighbors, your Jewish neighbors with whom you do life and share life and live and love, your Jewish neighbors, when they do the Passover meal every year, they don't say, hey, and on this day, our ancestors long ago did this thing. They use first person singular and first person plural pronouns when 
I was in Egypt. When we were enslaved, the Lord brought us out, brought us out, brought me out. And then they turned to the child and said, and brought you out. What are we doing to provoke, to irritate children enough for them to ask, what in the world are we doing here? Because this morning was a great start, right? This morning when we have our families here, it's a fantastic start. These families stood here before the Lord our God and said, hey, we're in. Let's do this. And JCBC, I think right now, is poised better than a long time, is poised to be fully present for families who want to irritate their kids. Under the leadership of, of Pastor Annie and Pastor Keb and Pastor McCuller, there is this trajectory of formation and spiritual development from childhood through adulthood in which we are ready to come alongside you. And you don't know what words to use? Fine. Don't know what to say to irritate or provoke your children to faith? Fine. Let's help you. Let's come alongside one another so that the goal of JCBC is to have a bunch of irritating kids for the sake of their salvation. What are you doing to create a rhythm of irritating children into faith? Uh, Fred Craddock is a name that many of you may know. If you don't know his name, Fred uh, died at 89, uh, not too long ago, about three years ago. He was a, a giant in the area of preaching. He was a homiletical hero to a generation or two of, of preachers. Shaped the way we think about this moment here. He really is like the Yoda of the preaching world, right? One day, he revealed to us that he they didn't go to a real church growing up. Oh, man, they had church, but they, they lived in such a remote part of, of Tennessee that they were miles and miles away from any real church with brick and mortar, right? But he said every Saturday night, his mother made him... Oh, this is great. Made him put on his uncomfortable clothes. And they would sit in their little living room and neighbors would come over and they would say prayers and they would sing songs from an old number two hymn book. They would sing Standing on the Promises. They would sing In the Garden. They would sing songs. And he would sweat beneath the collar of his uncomfortable clothes. And one day he said to his mother, Mom, ah, why, why are we doing all this? He was irritated. Why are we doing all this? And, and his mother said, well, because one day we'll live close enough to a big city where we can go to a real church. So we're practicing. He said that among the neighbors that came over every Saturday, two of them were Will and Mary Hunt. It's an African-American couple who would come over every Saturday. And, and Will Hunt was 88 years old at the time that Craddock was a small child. One night in the middle of the singing, he leans over to Will and he says, Will, you ever seen a real church? And Will said back to young Craddock, he said, Oh, yes, hundreds. What's it like? Oh, he said, it's the most stupendous, amazing, miraculous thing you've ever seen, child. 
Why? When you go in, though, you have to make sure you see what's on the inside. Because don't, don't forget, God always disguises His best stuff. Don't pay attention to the outside. Come on inside. And when you get inside, Will said to, to Craddock, when you get inside, oh, you look up and the ceiling uh, is all blue. And there are thousands thousand stars shining down. And there's this, uh, this angel choir that joins with the church choir. And when they get started, oh, you're just transported, boy. You're transported. Well, a few weeks after that conversation, Will died. They had his funeral at a real church several miles away. It was the first church that Craddock had ever stepped into. When they pulled up, he was not impressed at all because on the outside, parts of the wood were hanging down. The porch had rocks that were kind of crumbled. But he remembered what Will said. you got to go inside, boy. You have to go inside. So he goes inside and he walks in this creaky floor and these wooden pews. And the pews were wobbly. They wobsided where one would be up off the ground and the other leg would be down. And he sat there looking around. And he looked up and, and he said the ceiling wasn't blue. There were no stars in the sky. There were no angels singing. And he remembers thinking as an eight-year-old boy, Oh, Will, man, you've messed me up on all this. But then he said, The choir started to hum a little bit. And when they started to hum, then some of them started to sing. And as they began to sing, the congregation stood up and began to sway. We're swaying all together. And the mourners, they began to cry. And the prayers began to pray. And then there was this choir. And I looked up and lo and behold, Craddock says, huh, the sky, the ceiling, it's, it's all, all blue. And all these stars shining down. Lo and behold, an angel choir came and sang, Oh, Will, to his rest. Church takes practice. Children need to be irritated until they discover that the sky really is all blue and the angel choir really is singing. And the bloodstains that are over the house in which you live mean they can leave whatever Egypt attempts to enslave them. Yeah. Let's pray. God, in, in this moment we want to confess to you that we all live in our own Egypts and sometimes it's an Egypt of our own making. We are enslaved we are enslaved and sometimes we, as difficult as it is to confess to you, we will prefer to remain enslaved rather than take the risk of following you into a wilderness that leads to freedom. Irritate us today. Make something down in the depths of our soul so unsettling that we cannot, cannot, cannot ignore it. Set someone free today 
even now. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.